In Arizona, where stuntman Johnny Blaze is preparing to jump over Copperhead Canyon, despite the objections of a local tribe, who fear it will make their negotiations with the United States government, over that land, more difficult. The American monster known as the Hulk, is apparently responsible for a plane crash near Niagara Falls, where he has recently been seen battling Tiger Shark, before heading into the Canadian wilderness. Latvian nationals in southern Canada have been advised to be on their guard. There's also monster trouble in San Francisco, where hospitals are reporting numerous people, turning into purple-skinned bull monsters. Interference with the water supply is suspected. This is Doombot ZR5 for the VOL. Zero. Three. Zero. This is the voice of Latveria. Zero. Three. Zero. Here in Latveria, we get news from all over the world. The news may be good or bad, but we will always tell you the truth, as Lord Doom sees it. Every week on The Voice of Latveria, we examine Marvel Comics history through the career of its greatest hero, Dr. Victor Von Doom. And now, here's your host, Douglas Walk, the man who has read every Marvel superhero comic book, and lived to tell us all about it. Thank you so much, Doombot HT12. Our guest this week is a mild-mannered physics professor at the Great Metropolitan University, and the author of the book, The Physics of Superheroes. Professor James Kakalios, welcome. So we're looking at Warlock number four through seven. Very, very strange run of a very strange comic. Professor Kakalios, you've uh, recently read the entire run of this this run of Warlock, the, the first eight issues and uh, the Marvel, was it Marvel premiere that he started? It was Marvel, yes, that's right. It was Marvel premiere one and two. Okay. And then the character was so good that it just launched into uh, his own series, yes. So small disclaimer for those listening at home right now, the Dr. Doom we're talking about is not our familiar Victor Von Doom. It is still in Universe 616, but it's not our familiar Victor Von Doom. This is the Dr. Doom of Counter-Earth. So mm -hmm. what's, what's Counter-Earth? Okay, so Counter-Earth is an Earth that's created by the High Evolutionary, because I guess he has that ability. Right. Um, and he, uh, it's a whole other planet identical to in mass and radius to earth exactly at 93 million miles from the earth at exactly 180 degrees. If the orbits were a circle, it would just be exactly on the other side of the sun. So, you know, the earth has a, an elliptical orbit um, and in the elliptical orbit, there's like a point that's furthest away uh, from the sun. The sun is at one foci and the Counter Earth is at the other side. Okay. Um, just like I say, it's simpler if you think about it as a circular orbit. Then it's obviously just you know across the diameter. Right. The Earth is uh, the Sun is at the center, and we have our Earth six one six, and then Counter Earth, which because he's the counter evolutionary, also he accelerated evolution on the planet, and so um, rather than having to wait you know four point five billion years for the Earth to cool and several hundred million years for, you know, single-celled organisms to arise, it happened relatively quickly. Right. So he sets this up. And so it's, it's, it's an earth that has, you know, its own history that, or at least everybody thinks it's got a history. Um, and it's gone pretty much the same way, except he has managed to interfere with the origins of everybody we know as a super character. 
Right. Actually, it was Man Beast that Man Beast. Okay. Uh, ah, okay. With, because um, <laughs> the, um, the High Evolutionary set this up. He got life to evolve. It was. I he must have like exactly copied the initial conditions because the form of evolution took was identical to the form on earth. You know, there was no, nobody, nobody, you know, wasn't like all the humans that had third eyes or anything like that. It was all identical to earth. Um, and just at the key moment where like, you know, intelligent human life was, was coming into play. The high evolutionary was so exhausted by this experiment that he fell asleep as one does in the laboratory <laughs> when you reached the most exciting point right, in right, your experiment. And during that, that moment, um, Man Beast, his, another creation of the high evolutionary that, um, you know, is pure evil, decided to introduce um, evilness and, and hostility and violence because the high evolutionary is trying to make this counter earth his experiment was going to be without violence, without, it was going to be a peaceful uh, humanity. Okay. And so um, that's what happened there. And Warlock somehow, I can't even remember now, got, um, was watching all this from his cocoon and um, then went to counter earth to kind of stop man beast from messing up counter earth even more. So he's set up as, as your sort of, you know, standard Christ-like savior figure. Right. Right. That's right. very much so. I mean, it's not subtle at all, the, yeah. the uh, allegories there. Yeah. Um, uh, but the idea with, excuse me, the, what I brought up, Man Beast being right. you know, a typical comic nerd pedant was uh, saying that um, Man Beast wanting to be the only powered creature on Counter-Earth plus his minions arranged it so that there were no other superheroes. And so he, the cosmic rays bombarded the Fed, Reed Richards, Sue Storm, um, Johnny Storm, Ben Grimm, and the man beast made sure that they did not gain their powers from cosmic rays. Uh, Sue actually went into a coma. Um, Reed eventually got powers, you know, anyway, but, he was trying, you know, the man beast was trying to keep the superheroes out of the equation. So there's no Spider-Man, there's right. no Hulk from the counter earth. There's no um, other beings. Now, uh, how the man beast would know how to stop, a, you know, the radioactive <laughs> spider or like that's, that's a whole other question. There's a whole lot of hand waving at the beginning of this story. Like there's a, there's a lot of like, and, and then yeah, just, just take our word on this. Like this, this is how this happens. Um, it's, it's really, it's really like a relax. It's comics. Uh, okay. then. Uh, so there, there's the counter earth created. Does counter earth have a moon? Like, yes, it does. I believe okay. it does because it has to, it's, it's all, um, well, if it didn't have a moon, they wouldn't have tides and there are, you know, there's various other issues right. um, that would throw it off. But my understanding is, I think they even mentioned it at one point that it does have a moon. Okay. So, so that, that, that makes, makes sense for like it maintaining <laughs> its orbit and so forth. Um, now at the very beginning of this series, the high evolutionary does yet another thing that like somehow the high evolutionary is able to do 
which is to, uh, to make it, quote, vibrate on a different plane, a mere microsecond out of sync with the original Earth. So yeah. that it can't, so it can't be detected. Yeah. How does that work? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is one thing that as a physicist, <laughs> it bugs me. It bugs me with when um, it bugs me in, in this warlock. It bugs me in DC comics, which I know is, is yeah. outside the purview. Oh, that's fair. But when you're dealing with the flash, the flash yeah. is able to run through walls because he can control his vibrations, right. his atomic vibrations, and he can vibrate through walls. The atoms in a wall are vibrating because they're at room temperature. And everything is, if anything has a temperature, there's some internal kinetic energy. Right. Um, sometimes it's kinetic energy of the air molecules in the room that have a temperature that are whizzing around. And we characterize their kinetic energy by using a number the temperature. But you have a temperature at 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit. The wall has a temperature at maybe you know 68 degrees Fahrenheit. It's not that big a difference in temperature. And so the vibration of your atoms is really close to that of the wall. So slowing yourself down to 68 degrees, if that's what the flash is doing, <laughs> is not gonna make enable you to just pass through the wall. Getting back to Marvel, the vi you know get, again going through walls is um, like the vision. He controls his density. Right. Okay. It does. <laughs> if something of low density could move into some region of high density, then you would imagine it going the other way around. I mean, like walls on spaceships shouldn't work then because there's, <laughs> there's like no density, vacuum of space on one side, and then you have air on the other. So this all bugs me. The only the only one that I can I give a a, a pass to is Kitty Pride, um, okay. who can walk through walls. And there I will say that her mutant power is that she can control her quantum mechanical tunneling probability. I mean, there is there right. is a phenomenon in quantum mechanics where an electron can be, go up to a barrier and not have enough energy to go over the barrier, and yet somehow quantum mechanics says. You solve the equations, you say, well, there's a probability of the electron to be on the left of the barrier, no probability of being inside the barrier. You say, good, that this wouldn't make sense. But there is a probability that it shows up on the other side of the barrier. And it just doesn't, it's called tunneling, even though it doesn't make a tunnel through the barrier, it just shows up. And this not only is a weird prediction, but not only is it been experimentally verified, but you have chips in your smartphone right now that work tunnel, what are called tunneling diodes that rely on this principle huh. and to operate. You cannot, it's a probability. So you cannot predict which electrons will wind up on the other side. But if the probability is like 1% and I send 10,000 electrons in, then a hundred will show up on the other side. I don't know which hundred until I do it, but I can predict very accurately that a hundred, and the thing is, by changing a voltage, you can change the barrier property so you can tune that probability. And presumably, this is what Kitty Pride is doing. She is too. This is why she doesn't fall when she's tunneling, you know, because anyway. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm going into. No, this is great. This is great. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, 
this has nothing to do with <laughs> Dr. Newman Warlock, but um, uh, the oh, the, you, it was about the vibrations. Yes, the vibrations. Um, no, um, being slightly out of phase in vibration. It, I mean, the Earth is at a temperature. There's no one single frequency. There's no single thing that you could tune to change it. This is um, bad science mumbo jumbo. Um, it's uh i think it probably i could put the blame it started off with the flash and so there i could put the blame on julie schwartz which is kind of surprising (laughs) because usually he tried to make an effort to get the science quasi right but um of course he was writing for like the late 50s early 60s comic book readers so returning to these this very, very strange run of Warlock here. I mean, we probably don't even need to explain the plot just because it's so impossible to explain. Like, it makes no sense at all. Like, none. Yeah. Victor Von Doom and Reed Richards are friends in college that, you know, cheer each other on in the lab. There's a lab accident that has nothing to do with Von Doom trying to communicate with his, you know, mother in the netherworld right, right. um and yet his face his face is scarred so he decides to put on an iron mask but that's all he does and so he's frequently shown wearing like a suit and tie right. and the iron mask yeah um and uh and he's really kind of like on the one level he's got similar dune like properties he when he's first introduced, he's talking to himself. Okay, that's right. and and he's saying um, there's only one person who could stave off it, meaning disaster for the planet, and his name is Victor Von Doom, right. which is exactly the way that we all talk. You know, there's only one person that can make that light <laughs> before it turns red, and his name is James Cagallion. <laughs> so, right. He's got that, but then on the same time. So he's got a little bit of the doom egomania talking to himself and a bit in the third person. On the other hand, you know, the first thing he does is like, let's call Reed Richards. Oh, Reed is too busy to help me out. Okay. But (laughs) (laughs) I'll try it. I'll try to solve the problem anyway on my own. Uh, And he sacrifices himself at one point to save the earth. Um, It's very, yes, very undoom like in yeah. in a lot of ways and i guess they figured oh it'll be like counter earth so we'll make dr doom not an evil guy and reed richards because of the cosmic rays that didn't give him powers somehow turned him enabled him to turn into like a hulk like creature called the brute and it just you know they just went different in in ways that i just you know it didn't yeah. make any sense at all yeah so um what nominally gets this part of the plot underway is that some geologists are hanging out on the West Coast, announce <laughs> that there's going to be an underground bomb test in two hours that might cause an earthquake, uh, somehow communicate this to Adam Warlock, which somehow then like this information gets to Professor Von Doom who's wearing not just like a, a metal mask, but a full metal helmet. Yes. Oh, no, that's true. It's not a mask. You're right. It is a helmet. Right. Like, it's not even clear how he would take it off. Uh, <laughs> and uh, 
then he, he looks at the, looks at the figures, realizes that if the San Andreas Fault acts up, it could endanger the San Andreas Dam, <laughs> and gets on a hotline from Livermore Labs to the White House. Yes, where there's a president named Rex Carpenter, <laughs> which somehow like in the uh, maximum we're talking like eight nine years between like his human history being changed by the fantastic forest origins not not yeah. happening um this has led to somebody named rex carpenter being president in place of richard nixon mm -hmm. which right. is great because then the secret empire doesn't get into the white house but um oh it's actually worse though because we know rex carpenter gets turned it turns out that he's like spirit has been inhabited by the man beast oh yes yes so, that's right okay and so you know it's like secret empire man beast tomato tomato right 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 are there physics labs that have hotlines to the white house to to your knowledge all of them Douglas. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um I'm, I'm i'm hoping that i can continue if i for once i can get through this podcast without getting called by the White House. Um, yeah, it's, well, presumably Von Doom is, is at such a high level and he's holding the president and he says this might happen. And the president says, we've got to go forward with this bomb test because, you know, we can't risk the lives of 200 million people. Like if the bomb turns out to be a dud, somehow um, this is crucial. And... <laughs> <laughs> but he's willing to risk the lives of all these other people. Like the West Coast. <laughs> Are you going to even get to the death birds? That Can you even explain the death birds? Well, the death, I mean, apparently it's like there's these, this cache of weapons that is stored in underground caverns right by these earthquake faults. And the, and the, and the, 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 the bomb does indeed trigger the a, a massive earthquake which damages the dam and also sets off and releases all of these like flying you know drone missile type things um uh -huh. yeah i <laughs> what <laughs> I... You, you, I see you kind of like block that out <laughs> yeah i i you know uh tr trauma will do that you know the the, the thing is doom appears in it he sacrifices himself to save the planet. They make right. a statue of him. You know, he died that another may live. No greater love or life can a man have than this. Um, I'm, I'm looking at it. I certainly didn't memorize that. Um, but the, their whole thing is, ooh, it's counter-Earth, so we'll make Doom a good guy. But it's not even a convincing good guy. It's, it's kind of weird. Um, he could. It doesn't have to be Dr. Doom. It could have been anyone fulfilling this function so here's a here's a much broader kind of uh, counter-earth question uh if there were a counter-earth if there were another celestial body directly opposite the earth's orbit um is that something the astrophysicists would know about um my understanding is the answer is yes because there would be slight perturbations in the orbit of the earth because of the gravitation. I mean, it's extremely weak, but they would still exist. Um, you know, it's like the theory of general relativity. Okay. So <laughs> general relativity in 20 seconds, uh, general relativity okay. says 
is an equation and it says all the matter and energy is on one side and the geometry of space-time is on the other. And that's, that's general relativity. Space-time with no matter energy is a, is a sheet of rubber that's just spread out wherever. And if you have matter like the sun, it's you put a bowling ball on the sheet and it deforms the sheet and it bends down due to the weight of the bowling ball. So if another planet goes nearby, say like a marble, the earth going around it, it will not move in a straight line because it's now on this bent sheet of rubber and it will have a deflection in its trajectory because of the fact that the rubber sheet has been deformed by the bowling ball. And you could either say that the, the motion of the earth is, is disturbed by that bowling ball, by the sheet of rubber, or you could say, oh, but the earth has mass and the, and the sun has mass and it's gravity that's deflecting it. And the two are identical. And so there's no difference between saying it's a change in space-time, the structure of space-time, or it's a change due to gravity. That that, in essence, is what gravity is. This is how we actually can search for other planets, is looking for deviations in orbits of the planets we can see. And we say, oh, there's got to be something else that's there that's creating a disturbance. And so if I put, now, I mean, the earth deforms the sheet of rubber, not as much as the sun does, but it does anyway. Mm -hmm. And we know it actually has a significant de deformation because the moon is attracted to the earth. It doesn't just fly off and orbit the sun. So it's dis distorted. So if I had another planet on the other side, it would create a small disturbance in that sheet as well. And I think eventually they would have, you know, um, um, it, it should be that they would be able to detect such a such a an, an additional gravitational pull. Um, it's possible that they could just say, ah, well, it, they they may just think that you just fold it into the mass of the sun, you right. know, and say, well, the sun must be actually a little bit heavier than we thought. Um, and that would be counter earth. So it's possible, I suppose, that it could be hidden. I mean, I haven't crunched the numbers or run any computer simulations, but, um, but in general, this is how we find relatively nearby, you know, planets. And in fact, this is actually how you find um, exoplanets and other things as you look for deformations in their orbit um, of, of planets that you could see when they pass by another star and you can infer that there must be something else there that's pulling at it. Following up on that, let's trace what happens after this with the original counter-Earth. There's at least two counter-Earths and probably three. We'll get to the other soon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I barely signed up for one counter-Earth. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the this original counter-Earth, the high evolutionary one, uh, is subsequently kidnapped from where it is and taken off by, I think, the Collector or some other kind of celestial entity. Oh, okay. So it is no longer orbiting the sun. It is someplace else. Okay. Um, what happens to Earth's orbit then? Does it? Okay, does it so that change? would, so, so yeah, you couldn't really hide a counter Earth because, <laughs> you, no, because you, you, we would know, if say you folded in 
the the effects of the of the counter earth the gravitational effects of the counter earth and you folded it into the sun the counter earth was created presumably in like you know you know unless it was created and set up by the high evolutionary before humanity was making accurate records of the motion of the planets um it would have shown up okay. as suddenly uh, some change in in the gravitational effect, some slight deviation in the orbit, and that would be a big mystery. Okay. Um, there's like a, a tiny variation in the mo- motion of the orbit of Mercury that initially was like the only confirmation of general relativity. The general relativity was able to account for it, and Newton gravity was unable to. Um, so they were aware of like, because <laughs> back in the 1600s, there wasn't too much else to do, but just take accurate measurements <laughs> right. of the stars. Moreover, you use that for navigation. So there was a monetary, there was a financial motivation to know the positions of the stars as accurately as you could. Because if you're going to use it to navigate, um, uh, you know, across the Atlantic Ocean, you want to exactly know where you are and you want to know. Um, so you want to know th- those positions. So um, unless unless he created the counter earth back like, you know, around like 1000 AD when no one was paying attention, um, it's doubtful that you could put it there. And even if you had put it there, you take it away, that will show up. Okay. Um, and so people will eventually figure out, hey, the sun just suddenly got, you know, somewhat lighter. You know, it's a small effect, but real. And this will be a mystery, you know, that would have to be explained. But so uh, removing that much mass from the solar system is not going to suddenly throw everything into total disarray. You know, this is not quite, I'm a <laughs> humble but lovable condensed matter physicist. Right. So I, I do work with like nanocrystals and right. semiconductors. So I'm not quite sure about that. It, it wouldn't cause, it wouldn't cause like, the planet suddenly to start spinning out in, in some crazy orbits, but, um, um, and, and maybe someone, (laughs) someone will, will correct me. Um, but, uh, I think, I think that in itself, you know, the whole idea of like trying to have it perfectly shadowing our earth. Um, this is why you think they think they could get away with it, but, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, okay. So that original Counter-Earth is eventually destroyed by Thanos off-panel. Um, <laughs> oh, man. The yeah. indignity. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just kind of like referred to as having happened in the past tense. Uh, wow. Yeah. Then there's a second Counter-Earth, which is made by Franklin Richards. Uh, oh, okay. So... Initially, Franklin's Counter-Earth is uh, in a pocket dimension. Are pocket dimensions a thing? Um, It depends on your pocket, I guess. Um, (laughs) You know, there are some, there are some physicists who take ideas of the multiverse seriously. Um, There are... And so you could, I mean, when you call them pocket dimensions, 
I, I think what he's really referring to is a multiverse, you know, another universe. Um, they don't necessarily have to be quite as large as our universe. But again, we'd only, we don't really know exactly how large our universe is because we can only see out so far. And so it's conceivable that it's much larger. There's also this theory that beyond the point where we can see, there are other little expanding universes that are just going out. So they're all, so that's like, there's a, you know, a multiverse in that sense of like little bubble universes that are off that we can't, that we could never get to. Um, Cause you'd have to travel at the speed of light for the age of the universe to get to that edge. Or um, then there's like the many worlds where it's parallel dimensions and, and you know, parallel universes all coexisting slightly out of phase vibrationally. Right, right, right. <laughs> oh dear. Uh, yeah. Uh, and that's and that's like a, a one interpretation of quantum mechanics that um, uh, has been considered the crazy ant of quantum theory up until relatively recently. Okay, you know, physicists said, "Oh yeah, many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics." Hugh Everett third, yeah, thanks a lot, and just like <laughs> let us never speak of this again. <laughs> <laughs> And then suddenly string theorists found that they needed to use, invoke this in order to come up with um, a quantum theory of gravity. And so they're taking it seriously. And now the number of people who take it seriously is um, uh, in not insignificant. I mean, and when I say take it seriously, I mean in the scientific community. And I mean, some people who I have a, an extremely high regard for, you know, as scientists and um, as deep thinkers. Um, the problem is, you know, um, as we say in physics, Pixar, it didn't happen. Um, right. You have to come up with some experimental evidence for something like this. Right. Um, people are struggling with coming up with, to come up with some ideas on how to do that. Um, so we'll, but the jury is out. Right. So... That second uh, counter-Earth, the pocket dimension one that Franklin creates, is eventually relocated to right where the first counter-Earth had been, in opposite orbit, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is around the point at which uh, Doom becomes the emperor of the whole planet. Uh, okay. our, our, our Doom, our familiar Doom. Spoilers uh, for okay. know, future, series, future series of this. Uh, it then may itself be made to go out of out of phase, quotes, mm. uh, because at some point there's a third counter-Earth, which is once again a high evolutionary jam that uh, shows up in Uncanny Avengers, and it's not clear where this one is. Uh, mm. It could be there. It could be just someplace off in space that the high evolutionary has access to because he's the high evolutionary. But that's, mm -hmm. that, that's roughly what's going on with that. I'll give Franklin a, a pass because of <laughs> no seriously because of like there's never been when he's when he's fully powered up there's never any limit right. on been placed on his powers so he could presumably create a counter earth and manage to offset any gravitational effects yeah um, that would lead to it being detected otherwise yeah and Franklin's good at that stuff yeah uh so was there anything else in, in this weird little warlock story that, that caught your eye, either from a physicist's perspective or from a comics reader's perspective? So 
the relationship between Reed and Doom and, and Reed Richards and, and Victor Von Doom is so opposite to, um, you know, and that's the, one of the reasons, things that I dislike about sometimes when they create these alternate universes. And what I, I, I felt that they missed a lot of good bets with um, the ultimate universe when, they, like, when I was reading Ultimate Spider-Man in the first few issues. And I said, hey, maybe Uncle Ben doesn't die. You know, it's, it's a new universe. You could tell the story, but it was like, no, we're going to repeat. We're telling the, a new, the new stories, but we're going to exactly repeat beat for beat, you know, what happened um, anyway. So it's like, okay, it's a new universe. So we'll make it so that Victor Von Doom and Reed Richards are still in college, you know, working together and there's an accident and Vic, Vic's face gets scarred, but their personalities are completely different. And um it's not there's there's very little ego or anything fighting between the two of them um one of the things that i love about the the original marvel 616 1960 stanley jack kirby um vision of doom and i don't think that they actually this i think was more kind of developed accidentally almost so Victor Von Doom is is driven um, by you know the whole backstory given brilliantly in Fantastic Four Annual Number Two, and goes to this college because maybe he can learn get some useful things from the Americans. Um, meets Reed Richards, makes a mistake, um, you know, blows Richards off, makes a mistake. It literally blows up in his face, and. Experts can disagree as to whether it left a small little scratch or just wiped off his face. But, um, and then he spent the the rest of his time, you know, fighting Richards and, right. and, um, and trying to prove that he's the better man and, and smarter man. And um, Reed Richards later on takes you know, you know, various people on a race to the stars because they have to beat the reds to the stars and makes a mistake. And it blows up in his face and his friend's face. And the thing that resonated for me, and it didn't, when I first read this, it didn't until much later in my career as a physicist and a professor, but it occurred to me because I was talking to a colleague and we all had like this thing that we maybe did in the lab as graduate students where like later on you say, Ooh, that was dangerous. Right. Um, you do, you're, you're, you're trying something and you, you know, you, for many of us, it's like the grace of God that no one got hurt, you know, nothing blew up or anything else, but really I should have been more careful. And you learn that lesson and you go on. So everyone at some point in their life makes mistakes. And even if you're the smartest person on the planet, which will be either Reed Richards or Victor Von Doom, depending on who you're asking, at some point in your scientific career, you'll make a mistake. How you deal with it reflects your character, reflects who you are. 
Doom dealt with it by blaming everyone else. It's it was someone else's fault. It was a mistake. But I, I now have to show that I, you know, I'm the better person and I'm smarter. Reed dealt with his mistake by continually trying to improve the lives of the three other people who he felt he harmed, particularly Ben. And he never, you know, gave up trying to cure Ben um, from being the thing. And he took it personally and he accepted responsibility for it. Um, a couple of Thanksgivings ago, um, have a, a great nephew. So he's like a, a niece's son. And at Thanksgiving, I was reading him some comics, you know, collections of old Marvel masterworks. He was he really liked Spider-Man. So I was reading him various Spider-Man stories. And I read him the origin from Amazing Fantasy number 15. And he said, when we got to the key point, he said, is Uncle Ben really dead? And I paused for a second, you know, and I'm, I'm not his parent, but I mm -hmm. said, yes, he is, you know, and he stayed, you know, and he was dead yeah. and he doesn't, you know, you want to say, no, he gets better or something like yeah, that. Yeah. But, and I said, and I, and I decided, and I said, everyone makes mistakes and it's how you deal with it that, that matters. And, and in some sense, that's kind of the message of those, those stories. Doom makes a mistake. Reed makes a mistake. Peter Parker makes a mistake and, and this notion of accepting responsibility um, for what, what is going on. And that to me and is like the driving dynamic of, of what makes doom and read so interesting is, and then there's that, that John Burns story where I think that, I think it's like the terror of tiny town or whatever, yeah. um, where they're shrunken down in these tiny um, bodies Reed figures out that, and he figures out that it's Doom that did this, that it was the puppet master, but also Doom. And I, if, if memory serves, he figures it out because when he starts looking at the technology, he sees this high level of redundancy that, and, and that was like John Byrne saying, yeah, because at, at his heart, Doom is insecure and he will build in what if, if this circuit fails, I have a backup. And if that fails, there's backup number three. And presumably Reed builds his devices saying, well, the first circuit's not going to fail because that's how I built it. And he doesn't have the, so he makes, Reed uses, makes use of the extra circuitry due to the redundancies to, to get them out of there um, and to free, free everyone from tiny town. <laughs> and, but that also was like a great, insight into you know doom at one level has this insecurity deep down that he would maybe never even admit to himself on the other hand doom is also is is like maybe second only to captain america in terms of his willpower and his desire i mean yeah. someone who while the beyonder is taking you apart and vivisecting you alive still manages to reach forward and activate the device to steal yeah. the beyond his power i mean that to me is like the, the a, a key doom moment the stories of warlock there would be nothing of any interest at all if we had never read any fantastic four any marvel comics if this was the only marvel comic you read you'd say What's the deal with Doom? And what's yeah. the deal with Reed? And why should I care? And 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 what is all this? They 
the story makes no sense in and of itself. It only um, has any resonance if you say, oh, Doom's a good guy and Reed turns into like a Hulk-like creature. Yeah. Um, okay, I guess that's different, <laughs> but um, not necessarily better. But but the, the dynamic of Doom and Reed is just so rich that you don't really have to muck with it. I just think it's a very interesting uh, aspect that I think it just coincidentally, the fact that these two brilliant scientists each made a mistake early in their lives when they were younger men and how they dealt with it kind of informed who they became. Professor James Kakalios, thank you so much again for joining us. And we've got listener mail again this week from David who writes, there are things that seem relevant to subjects discussed in your episodes that may be outside your remit. I would have liked to hear a discussion of Boy Commandos number one, specifically Satan Wears a Swastika from winter 1942-43, where we see Simon and Kirby, faces shown, creating the Boy Commandos comic, then reading in a paper brought by the Newsboy Legion that they've been killed, apparently summoning the Sandman from the pages of Adventure Comics and getting him to find out what's happened. It would have been great to hear Alex Ross's remarks on Losers number 151, the Kirby-created Kill Me with Wagner, but again, not on topic for this podcast. I will reread this story after I send this email. So if encouraging people to read either again or for the first time some old comics, consider me another data point of success. Thank you so much, David. We really appreciate that. If any other listeners have questions or comments, feel free to send them to us. The email to use is faithfulretainerboris at voiceoflatveria.com. The Voice of Latveria podcast will be taking the next week or two off as I prepare for the release of my book, All of the Marvels, on October 12th, but we will return, and we have some pretty remarkable guests coming up later this fall. The Voice of Latveria podcast is made possible by the patronage of listeners like you. If you support us through patreon.com slash douglaswolk, you'll get access to our private book club and discussion board for Marvel nerds, the 616 Society. You can find out more about this podcast on our website, voiceoflatveria.com, and follow us on Twitter. This is Douglas Walk for the VOL. Douglas Walk appears by special arrangement with Universe 1218. His book, All of the Marvels, is a guided tour of 60 years and half a million pages of the Marvel Comics story. All of the Marvels will be published by Penguin Press this October. Lord Doom commands you to order it. Zero. Three. Zero. This is the voice of Latveria. Zero. Three. Zero. Tomorrow on History in Perspective. This week, as Spider-Man, the Disruptor, and the Smasher were involved in an incident in which the roof collapsed at a fundraising event for New York politician Richard Rawley, more than a few people have wondered, didn't something like this happen already, just a few years ago? It's true that there was a very similar-looking politician named Richard Rawley, who held a fundraiser at a dance hall, at which the roof collapsed. That time, it involved Spider-Man and the Man-Monster. However, that, Richard Rawley is dead, possibly at the hands of Spider-Man as well. Mere coincidence, deja vu, or, as some have theorized, proof that we are living within a glitchy simulation? We'll investigate on history in perspective, tomorrow on the VOL. This concludes our broadcast day. May Doom's terrifying face inspire you to devotedly implement his policies, until you die. (laughs) 